Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 36 years, we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. Forums are free and open to the public. Information on upcoming events can be found at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Dr. Richard Haas is president of the Council on Foreign Relations, an independent, nonpartisan educational institution and think tank seeking better understanding of issues facing the United States and other countries around the world. He has served as a senior Middle East advisor to President George H.W. Bush and as a principal policy advisor to Secretary of State Colin Powell. He was the U.S. Coordinator for Policy on the Future of Afghanistan, and he served as a U.S. Envoy to both the Cyprus and Northern Ireland peace talks. A recipient of numerous awards, including the Presidential Citizens Medal, the State Department's Distinguished Honor Award, and the Tipperary International Peace Award, he is the author or editor of 12 books on foreign policy and international relations, including his latest book and the subject of today's talk, the World in Disarray, American Foreign Policy and the Crisis of the Old Order. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Dr. Richard Haas. Well, thank you for that uh, generous welcome. Thank you, Tim, for the introduction. I almost felt like Garrison Keillor was going to stand up and sell us all some powder milk biscuits. <laughs> it's, uh, great to be back in Minneapolis. Uh, this is a beautiful space, first time I've been in this hall. And that kind of concludes the positive part of my remarks. Uh, <laughs> so, it's good probably we're in a house of worship. It's, uh, every once in a while, the power of prayer, uh, the necessity for it kicks in. Uh, as the title of the book suggests, this is a world of disarray. Uh, the good news is it could be worse. This could be a world of uh, chaos. This could be a world of anarchy, and it's not. And that's actually an important point, and one of my goals in writing this book is that it will not be necessary for me or anyone else to write a book called A World in Chaos or A World in Anarchy. Uh, and I'll talk for a minute about how we got to this point, but there's very little about history that's inevitable. Uh, to a large extent, history is the result of uh, what people think and then what they do, the interaction of ideas and, and men and women. And we got to where we are in part because of uh, sets of ideas and individuals who uh, and along the way, I believe, made some mistakes. And the good news in that, though, again, it wasn't all inevitable. And depending upon what we do and how we do it going forward, uh, things can turn out uh, better. Not automatically, but, but possibly. So what I want to do is uh, speak uh, for no more than my allotted time. This is not Washington. I will not filibuster. And what I want to talk is uh, a little bit about why this is a world in disarray. But I won't belabor that, because I think it's pretty, pretty obvious. I want to talk for a few minutes about how we got there, because again, it wasn't inevitable. And as is always the case in history, I think there's things we can and should learn from it. And then I want to spend uh, a big chunk of my time talking about what we might do about it. 
And then uh, again, we'll reserve uh, as much time as we can for your, your comments, uh, your questions, uh, even your criticism. Though as any married man uh, in this room can probably attest to that this whole concept of constructive criticism can be overdone. And uh, <laughs> so, so go easy on me, go easy on me here. Okay, a world in disarray. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious. If you look at the Middle East to start with, which is by far the messiest part of the world. I mean, Syria alone is as tragic a story as we've seen. More than half the population of the country, more than 11, 12 million people rendered homeless. Some within the country, uh, millions and millions as refugees, four to 500,000 have, have, have lost their lives. You've got several other places in the Middle East like, like Libya, uh, Yemen, elsewhere where you have failed states, civil wars, in some cases now, the civil wars are becoming regional wars and proxy wars, and there's a degree of major power uh, involvement. You know, we all grew up looking at maps designed by Mr. Rand and Mr. McNally. Uh, large parts of this Middle East no longer conform to their maps. Borders in some cases, or maybe lines uh, on paper or on a globe, but on, in reality, they are not, uh, they're not real. They are not uh, respected. And so you, you've got you know, Iran uh, with all sorts of capacities in the nuclear realm, many countries with all sorts of conventional military capabilities, very few uh, governments, to say the least, uh, conducting themselves in any way democratic. So this is uh, as messy a part of the world as there is. Europe. I didn't think I would ever in my lifetime talk about Europe again being messy, being disorderly, but it is. We've had the aggression of Russia in Crimea and in other parts of uh, eastern Ukraine, something we simply didn't expect to, to see again once the Cold War uh, ended. The entire question of the European project, the European Union, which grew up after World War II to so knit together the economies and countries of Europe so that war, which had ravaged Europe twice in the 20th century, so that war would become unthinkable. Suddenly we have politicians across the political spectrum, far left and far right, questioning the entire concept of a, a Europe that's, that's tightly uh, integrated. Uh, massive economic problems. Million refugees came into Europe from, from the Middle East alone in, in short amounts of time. So again, the entire future of, of Europe is somewhat up for grabs. Indeed, the vote this Sunday in France, depending upon how it goes, you can almost say that Europe will go down one or two paths, depending upon the outcome of what the people of France uh, decide. Asia, we've been hearing a lot about it recently for good reason. Quite arguably the, the biggest national security challenge facing the United States, the American people, the 45th president, Mr. Trump, is North Korea. It's a matter of months, at most years, a couple of years before North Korea can take the nuclear warheads it's been producing, shrink them down, put them uh, together with the so-called reentry technology and put them on ballistic missiles that have the range and accuracy to reach the United States. Again, we're months or years away from that. The question is whether we permit that to happen, whether we can stop it, if we were to stop it, uh, how we would do it. But again, the stakes of that are enormous. Another question in Asia is also China. So much of history, so much of history is about the friction between the existing great power of the day, the United States, and the rising great power, China. This entire school of thought that says cold war or worse is inevitable 
between the United States and China. If that were to happen, it becomes a very different and very much darker 21st century. So the question is, can we somehow beat history? Can we defy the pattern of history and see that the US-Chinese relationship uh, doesn't turn out badly? And the answer, again, is it's, it's, it's possible, but uh, it's, it's quite difficult. Globally, uh, two things. One is all these institutions in the world, from the UN to others, these were all designed, what, 60, 70, 75 years ago. That was such a different world. If I handed out pencil and paper, I would think that virtually none of you would design a United Nations Security Council that would look like the current one. This is what people 75 years ago thought the configuration of power would be. But Japan's not on it, Germany's not on it, India's not on it, and so forth. Uh, it no longer corresponds to reality. 25, 30 years ago, there wasn't anything meaningful called the internet. Yet now we have a world where the internet is central to everything we, we do. Well, who sets the rules? And what are the rules supposed to be? Well, the answer is uh, there aren't very many rules. And as a result, we see some of the activities we've seen, the hacking uh, and, and the rest. So what you have is a, a big gap in two ways. One is the institutions aren't up to it. And there's a big gap between global challenges of every sort you can imagine and global arrangements. You know, one of the most common phrases in my business is international community. But the deep, dark secret is there isn't much in the way of an international community. There isn't a degree of a consensus, and there isn't often a willingness to, to act. So this is the, the basics of a, of a world in disarray. And there's many other things I could add to fill in the picture. Uh, how did we get here? Well, to some extent, things happen, to paraphrase uh, Mr. Rumsfeld. Uh, why, countries like China rise. You have different changes in, in power. Uh, as I said, certain institutions didn't evolve, didn't adapt. New technologies came about that we couldn't quite figure out how to, how to manage. The Cold War ended, which was a good thing. And the Cold War ended on terms we could only dream about. But the Cold War was also a world where you had two concentrated camps with power and all sorts of rules about how to manage the world. And when that ended, a lot of the discipline of that world went with it. So now we have a world in which you have dozens and dozens and dozens of centers of power, much more difficult to, to organize. And not all, these, not all these centers of power are even countries. You have these awful terrorist organizations like ISIS or Al-Qaeda. You have other very positive groups. But again, it's become much more difficult to, to organize uh, this world. So things have changed. Uh, the image I have is one of centrifugal forces, of things moving away from the center, of a world of increasingly distributed capability and decentralized decision-making. So that's, that's one thing that, that's going on. Those are, to, more, to a large extent, structural. But then I also think the United States bears some responsibility, uh, in part for things we've done uh, acts of acts of commission. Uh, I would say the 2003 Iraq War, as much as anything, and the forces it set loose in the uh, Middle East. Uh, I think history will be quite critical of uh, both the decision to go to war and how uh, how the war was conducted and the aftermath. But then I think Mr. Bush's successor, uh, Mr. Obama, will also be criticized for some of the things he did, the intervention in, in Libya 
the decision to take American forces out of Iraq after Iraq had to a large extent been re-stabilized. And then I think the United States will also be criticized, ironically enough, not just for things we did, the acts of commission with the sea, but also the acts of omission. Indeed, the more I study history, the more I've come to conclude that what a country, particularly a great power, doesn't do can be every bit as meaningful, can be every bit as consequential as the things uh, we, we don't do. And I think the top of the list for Mr. Obama will be what he didn't do in Syria, most dramatically when we said there's a red line and if Syrian government uses chemical weapons, there would be a large price to pay. The Syrian government nevertheless used chemical weapons and there wasn't the price that they paid. Uh, the fact that the United States does, did not retaliate, I think, sent a message that chemical weapons could be used and that the United States would not necessarily match its rhetoric with its, with its uh, behavior. There were other opportunities to do things in Syria uh, that the United States uh, did not take uh, as well. Or before, just a minute ago, I mentioned Libya. The United States intervened in Libya. Uh, I did not think it was a warranted intervention, but then we compounded the error that even if you thought it was a good idea, we didn't follow it up. So we took away the old sources of power, of order in Libya, as flawed as they were, but we didn't work to put new centers of authority or order in their uh, place. And very few things in this region, very few things in the world organize themselves. Many of you may have studied Economics 101, and you'll learn the idea of Adam Smith and the invisible hand working out the economic marketplace kind of by itself. They may or may not work in economics. That's a, that's a conversation for another day. It doesn't work in the world of geopolitics. Good things just don't happen. Actually, more the opposite. Uh, to switch to another course from economics to science, it's more entropy. Things tend to move away from order. Things tend to move away to design if left to uh, their own uh, devices. And I think more recently, we've had the situation of the, the campaign, the transition, and the first, what, 105 days or so of the Trump presidency. And I think we have uh, largely added to the disarray in the world by uh, raising questions about American longstanding policies, support for global trading arrangements, for introducing a degree of unpredictability an uncertainty into American foreign policy, and while on occasion, on occasion, introducing uncertainty and unpredictability can be a way of keeping your adversaries or your would-be adversaries off balance, it's almost never good when it comes to your friends and allies, because they've, the, they've made the big decision to essentially put their fate in our hands. And if they have reason to doubt whether that is a wise decision, whether the hands they put their fate in are safe hands, they will decide to uh, place their fates either in their own hands, which would simply reinforce the idea of a, a all the centrifugal tendencies, or they'll defer to some powerful neighbor, an Iran in the Middle East, a Russia in Europe, a China in Asia. In either one of those futures is a world, I would think, of uh, less stability and, uh, and less American uh, influence. So what do we do? What do we do then uh, in this world of uh, disarray in which we uh, find ourselves? Let me talk about uh, five things. Uh, I know public speakers are told never to go above three. Uh, I apologize in advance. I, you're free to ignore the last two. Uh, but let me, uh, let me talk about five things. 
the first three are geographic, fourth one is global, the fifth is domestic. Uh, we'll start with the Middle East. Topic of great interest just recently. You had the head of the Palestinian Authority meet with President uh, Trump uh, yesterday, just a few hours ago. It was announced that the president's first overseas trip, uh, among other places, will include Israel and Saudi Arabia after he le leaves uh, Italy uh, later this month. Uh, the Middle East is uh, almost a proverbial Goldilocks challenge. How do we avoid doing too much and how do we avoid doing too little? We've learned if we kind of want to make the Middle East in our image, that could be a dangerous and expensive and ultimately uh, impossible undertaking. The idea that we were going to come to the Middle East and leave it and leave behind 350 million people reading the Federalist Papers in Arabic translation, uh, nice idea, didn't happen, not going to happen uh, anytime soon. But the other extreme, uh, simply washing our hands of it, uh, we can't afford to do that. Saudi Arabia alone produces one out of every 10 barrels of oil produced in the world every day. Uh, and even if the United States is energy self-sufficient, we can't be independent of uh, the global turmoil that would come if there was a major interruption in, in, in Middle Eastern oil. The Middle East is the home to the world's most powerful and dangerous uh, terrorist organizations. As, we, as the Europeans saw, as we've seen, when there's dis instability in the Middle East, you have massive refugee flows with all the human misery, but also political consequences. Uh, that entails, we have important alliance relationships, including uh, with uh, Israel. So what we need to find is a way where we can stay involved in the Middle East without becoming, if you will, overly involved or, or, or overly uh, ambitious. And I think for the near term, that means focusing on dealing with the uh, terrorists, in particular those who have uh, set up shop in places like Iraq and uh, Syria, defeating them, uh, trying to stabilize areas then are, that are limited, but also then not getting overly ambitious about um, trying to, again, to remake the Middle East in our, in our image. My own hunch, and we can talk about this more, I don't think the prospects for uh, bringing peace to the Middle East or anytime, anytime soon are, are realistic. So our goal in the Middle East may simply be to stabilize it, not to think of it more as a condition, at best to be managed, rather than a problem to be solved. I know that sounds slightly defeatist, slightly un-American, but even that, trust me, will prove to be ambitious when it comes to the, uh, to the Middle East. In Europe, what I would say is uh, two things. We want to deter and discourage any further Russian aggression against Ukraine or anybody else, and I think that means reintroducing some of the capabilities we took out of Europe when the Cold War ended. We thought in many cases that we weren't going to have to worry about those kind of old-fashioned threats in Europe. Well, guess what we do? So we need to raise the potential price to Mr. Putin. Mr. Putin is many things. But he is, uh, I believe, not reckless, and I think he would respect if he sensed that NATO had the capability and the will to uh, frustrate uh, him. But my goal is not to humiliate him or isolate him, and I think it's good the president called him the other day, and I think we should have a conversation with the Russians, push back again against any military adventurism, push back against their use of cyber tools uh, to disrupt the politics here or Europe or, or, or anywhere else, but still hold open the possibility of selective cooperation, possibly in Syria, possibly uh, elsewhere. 
And I think we ought to encourage the Europeans to sort themselves out. And again, if things turn out the way the polls say they will, and you know you can always believe polls, uh, but if things turn out the way they say they will in France this week, I think Europe will have an opportunity based upon the, the Franco-German relationship to reform itself and to prepare itself for the future. In Asia, I would think we want to invest heavily in our relationship with China. Again, I think this will be the defining relationship of this century uh, and how this relationship goes will have tremendous implications. The near-term test, though, will be North Korea. And you know, when you boil it down, there are essentially three options when it comes to North Korea's uh, nuclear and missile capabilities. One is to essentially accept it and hope that we can deter it or defend against it if, de if uh, deterrence breaks down. That is, I would say, a somewhat risky proposition, given the nature of the leadership there. We could go to war, but the last Korean War, as several of you who are old enough will remember, was unbelievably costly by every measure, human life, uh, economically, militarily. And another Korean War promises to be extraordinarily costly again. So not something we should ever contemplate uh, lightly. The third option is to try to negotiate uh, our way through it. I think there's a chance, I can't say it will work, but I think since the other two options are so unattractive, we ought to at least explore it. I think Mr. Trump has done a good job of getting the attention of the Chinese leadership that their uh, influence is needed here. Almost all of North Korea's trade goes in and out through China, so China does have considerable uh, influence over North Korea, Korea, and my hope is uh, they will use it. Again, uh, history suggests the need to be sober here, but I think it's worthwhile taking a, uh, taking a run at some sort of negotiated outcome. Again, it may not solve the problem. I don't think it would eliminate North Korea's nuclear capabilities or missiles, but it might put a ceiling on them in ways that, again, we could, uh, we could live with. Beyond these three geographies, let me just talk about two other issues and then I'll uh, stop. One is globally. I think a big part of the challenge of this era of history is trying to narrow this gap between all these global challenges, what to do about cyber, what to do if there's, God forbid, the outbreak of a terrible infectious uh, disease, what to do about terrorism, how to promote trade, uh, all these issues, how, how to deal with climate change, uh, and how do we basically try to take the phrase international community and make it more real? How do we try to build greater consensus among the governments of the world and then try to uh, incentivize them to act in constructive ways or to discourage them for acting in unhelpful ways? And I actually think this ought to become one of the uh, centerpieces, in some cases, the compass for America's role in the world. It may sound idealistic, but I don't think it is. Because increasingly, as we're seeing uh, in this country and as we're seeing around the world, nothing stays local for long. What happens in some remote part of any country can very quickly get on the, the highway of globalization and come here, whether it's terrorists, as we learned the hard way on 9-11 from a remote part of Afghanistan, or computer hackers from who knows where getting into our financial systems or into our companies or into our personal uh, accounts. Zika virus, Ebola, other type viruses, a flu pandemic, one can imagine the results of uh, that. Climate change, doesn't matter where things originate from, again, it's a collective uh, consequence. 
So we have got to uh, try to narrow this gap in the world between these global challenges and the global response. And fifth and last, uh, the United States has got to play a part in this. As I said before, the world just doesn't sort itself out. It certainly doesn't sort itself out without the United States. We can't do it alone, but the world can't do it without us. There's no individual or collection of countries that are, have this kind of a mindset and this kind of capability to play a large, leading, uh, constructive role. So we have got to stay active in the world. I think this means ten, being staying close to our friends and our allies, reducing the degree of uncertainty and unpredictability that we have, uh, that we have introduced. And I think it means pushing, uh, pushing back against those who would uh, use force or do other things to uh, be extraordinarily disruptive. It means taking the lead diplomatically, as I said, to try to narrow some of these gaps between global challenges and global issues. The good news, and here, see, I, I can be optimistic. Uh, the good news is we can afford to do this. We can afford to do this. If you look at everything we're spending on defense, even with the recent increases, the level of defense spending is still only about half the percentage of our economic output that we averaged during the Cold War. So we, we can afford it. We did fine during the four decades of the Cold War economically at, here at home. It's not going to bankrupt us. And you can blame what we do in the world. You know, you can be critical of what we did in Iraq and so forth. But you can't blame, you know, the Iraq War for then the 2007-2008 financial crisis. You know, we've made mistakes here at home, which are just that, mistakes here at home. But our foreign policy is not to blame for it. To the contrary, if we help keep the world stable, if we help keep the world uh, orderly, trading relationships can prosper and so forth, it seems to me that is not just an act of charity or goodwill for the world, that's an investment in ourselves. Because again, what happens out there will come here. Or to put it another way, there's no place in the world that's Las Vegas. What happens anywhere now doesn't stay there. So we have got to be active, we've got to be active in the world and out of, out of self-interest. Because if bad things happen, if they're allowed to grow up and get worse, they will one way or another find their, their, their way here. So what we spend abroad is not in any way a distraction or a waste. It's, it's totally connected to our welfare here at home. So it'll accomplish good things out there, but it'll do good things for ourselves. And as I said, the really good news is we can afford it that we can afford to do all those things over there and we can afford to do all that we need to here, uh, it means they're getting our political house in order. And if there's a real challenge, I would say, to our national security, it might be less some of the forces and actors out there than our own lack of uh, consensus and our own willingness to, uh, to do what we can and should do to essentially continue to play a, uh, a large role in the world. We have been well served, I would argue, by the last 70 uh, years or so uh, of history. And it's been a time of, uh, on balance, remarkable stability, remarkable prosperity. Billions of people around the world have been lifted out of poverty. There's been tremendous improvement in global standards of living as well as the standard of living here. And all these things just didn't happen by themselves. They in no way were inevitable. They were the result, again, of people and ideas, many of whom, uh, born or came of age in, in this country. So, you know, how things play out in the future, I don't know. When I used to work in government, I used to say I was the head of policy planning, not policy predicting. I, uh, and, 
Actually, I would have brought my crystal ball today, but TSA took it at the, uh, at the, at the, at the airport in New York. But the, the one thing I know is, again, what we do as a society, what we do as a country, will probably have an outsized uh, impact on how the world evolves, which in turn will have an outsized impact on the quality of life here. And the reason I uh, wrote this book is uh, partially a warning, but also partially the, to kind of give a compass about both what we should avoid doing and uh, what it is we should think about doing. And I very much hope we get it right. So thank you for having me here today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Dr. Richard Haas. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicola Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, Dr. Richard Haas, author of the new book, A World in Disarray, American Foreign Policy and the Crisis of the Old Order. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to thank our broadcast partner, the statewide network of Minnesota Public Radio News, heard in the Twin Cities at 91.1 FM, and the media sponsor of today's forum, the online news source, MinPost. And now, Dr. Haas, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from the audience. I will return to the pulpit, but the good news, I, I will not give a sermon. Yeah. So, uh, Leave that, leave that to me, that's good. Uh, let me ask, before we get questions from the audience, I assume this book, published in 2017, was mostly written before the first 100 days of the current administration. If you were to write a second edition, say, following what we've experienced in the first 100 days, what kinds of things would you add? Yeah, uh, the book was finished. The first draft was finished uh, about a year ago. The final draft was finished last summer, and the title and everything were set. Uh, and the reason is, when someone runs for president, he or she can choose just about everything they want, running mates, policies, platforms, and all that. The only thing they can't choose is the inbox that will greet them if they are to win. And I just knew that whoever was to win or were to win would, would inherit this inbox of a world in, in, in disarray. And that was the only thing. Uh, I knew for sure, and that wouldn't have changed had it been Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton or, as it turned out, Donald Trump. Uh, I will actually do a new edition, uh, a paperback, and it, which will come out about a year after the original publication, so that will come out in January of uh, 18. What I think I will uh, be, do is, play, is emphasize uh, more the idea pushing back against some of the themes we've seen in the Trump administration uh, about America first, which I think is too narrow a uh, structure for America and the world. Again, it, it reinforces the sense that somehow what happens out there is not connected to what happens here. It simply isn't true. It's intimately connected. It also reinforces the sense that what we spend out there isn't, should be better spent here not so. We've got to do it in both places. We don't have the option of choosing in an era which borders count for less. We've got to think of national security as something that has beyond, happens beyond our borders but inside our borders. Uh, 
as well. So I, I would emphasize that. I would discourage American uh, unpredictability. Those of you who are lawyers understand the importance of precedent. And again, I think it's important for a country that so many others depend on that we, we be very careful when we, when we change course because people will begin to say, wow, can't, if we can't count on the United States here, there, and there, maybe we can't count on them elsewhere. So I just think we need to, in a sense, be more focused on preserving rather than disrupting. Again, I think there's more to preserve that's been in our interest than there is to uh, change. So those will be some of the themes I, uh, I will predict you will see in, uh, in, in your next edition. In the next edition. Will the title be changed to The World in More Disarray? Or <laughs> let's hope not. Let's hope not. And I actually think, just to be fair, I, I think there's two things the administration have done that are significant that are also welcome. One was the willingness to use force in Syria. I think that uh, re, it somewhat reestablished the norm that uh, a chemical weapon, a weapon of mass destruction, ought not to be used. And it also sent a certain message that the United States was more willing to uh, to act when it, when it, so it isn't necessary. And as I alluded to before, I think we have communicated to the government of China that we can't simply allow this situation in North Korea to drift. It's, I first wrote about the North Korean nuclear program in the early years of the Bill Clinton administration. So that's more than two decades ago. And you know, there's very little about foreign policy that resembles a good wine. If you put something down for a decade or two, it's not usually better when you, uh, when you, when you pick it up. And I think, actually, it's not just Donald Trump, just to be clear. If Hillary Clinton had been elected, I think this would have been the number one issue facing her presidency as well. And I think she, just like Donald Trump, would have communicated to the Chinese, something has to be done that's different. This simply can't uh, go on. So I think the Chinese are on notice. How exactly this will play out, again, I don't know. But I think the administration uh, is right in the way they have signaled China. Here's a question that's been tweeted into us. How will the State Department be impacted by the President's proposed cuts? 31% of the budget of the State Department. Large number of open, unfilled positions. Uh, the short answer is I think uh, both the the, the, the proposed budget cuts, if they were to happen, would be uh, extremely regrettable. The good news is I don't think most of them will happen. I think the separation of powers will work its magic and Congress will, will largely push back. And again, it, it's important that we not, I know defense spending's getting increased and I can make the case for increasing defense spending, but national security needs a full range of instruments. And as the Secretary of Defense, uh, Secretary Mattis, formerly General Mattis, has said, he, he understands the value in other tools. It could be aid, it could be diplomacy. I remember Ash Carter, his predecessor, said he would gladly give up a carrier battle group if the United States would join the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, the trade agreement in Asia. So we can't simply think of national security as what we spend on defense or on borders. We've got to think about all the instruments of influence and power, so cutting the budget's unwise. And second of all, foreign I used to teach foreign policy, and I used to tell my students the first day of class, foreign policy's hard. It is really hard. The, you know, what you need to know, and then the trade-offs, the analysis that goes into it. To do that with the best of talent in the room is tough enough. To do it without the talent, extraordinarily difficult. So this administration, So this administration 
is working against its own self-interest by having virtually all the senior civilian positions in both the Defense Department and the State Department uh, empty. And it just needs to change. And I would also say, as an aside, I think you know, hundreds of people who would normally be working in this administration are not because they were Republican, kind of the Republican foreign policy hands who have been precluded from joining simply because at one point or another they made statements or signed letters that were critical of then-candidate uh, Donald Trump. So we're better than in a, the Westminster town, a, a house of worship, to make the argument for forgiveness. Uh, <laughs> but I do think, or if you prefer legal arguments, a pardon. But I really think that the president needs to move beyond what was said then. Look, even people who opposed him, Right now, we all have a stake in his being as good as he can be as a president. We have a stake as citizens in his succeeding. He should want to bring into the administration the best and brightest in this society, regardless of what they said or wrote during the campaign. So I hope we get to that point. You referred in your remarks about the upcoming trip for the president to Saudi Arabia, a Muslim country, to Israel, of course, a Jewish nation, and to the Vatican in Rome. Uh, aside from covering his theological bases here, yeah. is, do you think there is some sort of a religious strategy to cover, to, to encounter those three great world religions on his first foreign trip? Well, it is a good hedging strategy. Uh, <laughs> I admire it. Uh, it's, uh, Look, religion's a powerful force in, in foreign policy and more broadly in international relations. And what we're seeing increasingly in this world, for better and for worse, is the fusion of politics and religion. And it can be a very positive interaction. I think, for example, when someone like uh, Pope Francis speaks out, it can be you know, quite often a very positive sort of message. And we've obviously seen religion and politics come together in the most distorted of ways in various terrorist uh, groups. Uh, I think, you know, Speaking with the Pope, this president, uh, is a good thing simply began because, again, this Pope is such an influential and respected uh, individual. I think it's important he go to uh, Israel. This is a relationship that did not flourish, shall we say, under the previous administration. Lots of reasons and responsibility to go around on both sides. But it needs to be uh, improved simply because of the challenges that the United States and Israel both face in what is the the part of the world most characterized by, by disarray. Uh, whether something good can happen on the, so, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian front as well, I don't know. I, I'm skeptical. But uh, it's worth the conversation. The, uh, and I think the, to, to meet you know, Saudi Arabia is extraordinarily important given uh, the, the wealth, but also Saudi Arabia's position in funding and supporting various religious institutions in the Islamic world. Ultimately. The message needs to go out that uh, in mosques to in two types of messages. One is to delegitimize what certain people are doing in the native name of Islam. That has got to be delegitimized. There can be no place for this kind of uh, terrorism or violence. But second of all, you also can't beat something with nothing. And I think there needs to be a more positive, uh, modern version or interpretation of Islam that will attract the the curiosity and the enthusiasm, particularly of of younger people. So I do think there's a strong reason for that, for that visit. You were once uh, an advisor to the President, uh, George H.W. Bush, in the Middle Eastern Affairs. And I suspect you may be uh, having some influence and contacts with the current White House administration. If they were to ask you uh, what 
one or two steps could be taken with Israel and Palestine to move toward a, uh, something more constructive in that relationship. What would you suggest? One of my previous books uh, what developed this concept of ripeness, R-I-P-E-N-E-S-S. -E and the whole idea was for any dispute, whether we're talking about Israelis and, Israelis and Palestinians or Greeks and Turks or uh, Indians and Pakistanis or in Northern Ireland, that besides having some kind of a, a model agreement in the back of your head and a process that people will participate in, the most important thing for any peace process and I know this from experience because I failed it more than, more than most, uh, is you need leadership that's willing and able. You need to be both willing and able to make meaningful compromises for peace. I just don't see that right now in, on the Israeli-Palestinian uh, front. So I think ambitious diplomacy will not succeed. And that's been the lesson of recent decades. I'd love to be wrong. Good news is I'm wrong frequently, uh, but I, I just don't see it. But even if I happen to be right in this case, an ambitious diplomacy designed to quote unquote solve the Israeli-Palestinian dispute won't succeed. It doesn't mean we simply walk away. Uh, again, it's not gonna get better on its own. So I would say several things. One would be something I wouldn't do. I would not move the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. I think that, uh, I think that has the potential to be a spark, and this is a part of the world that does not lack for sparks. I would work very hard with all the authorities more broadly to see that the holy sites do not in any way become the venue of political protests, much less physical destruction. Can you, you can all, it doesn't take a great imagination to figure out the, the repercussions about how that would, in this world, uh, uh, affect things. And I think it's important that both sides do things that signal the others uh, about an openness to compromise. And it might mean things they don't do, restraint in certain areas, say on the Israeli side, entitlement, settlements, opening up, facilitating certain types of crossings, thinking about how you balance security and other considerations on the Palestinian side, message, uh, how they control what they say in public, how you control what is or influence what is said in textbooks and so, and so forth. That I think that what you, if, you don't, if the moment isn't ripe for a breakthrough in negotiations, what you want to do is think about what you can do to bring about such a moment in the not too distant future. And that's where I think diplomacy has to focus. In your remarks, you spoke of five points. The first three were geographic. You covered uh, China, North Korea, the Middle East, and Europe. Uh, and in the interest of time, you left off other parts of the world's geography, including probably more than half the population of the world if you throw in India, Africa, and Latin America. Lots of questions coming forward uh, about those parts of the world. Let's Good. begin with Africa. Any comments there? It's uh, fair enough critique. I could have given you points six, seven, and eight, but I figured I'd go too far. On Africa, look, Africa is extraordinarily hard to generalize about simply because you've got you know, more than 50 countries that you're talking to. So you've got incredibly positive things, but also real problems in places like South Sudan, uh, the Congo, and so forth. And you've got a lot of disappointing things that aren't crises, but are truly disappointing. I'd say South Africa falls in that box to some extent. Uh, Nigeria. You've had... Um, some improvements in governance, and I think that's the key in some countries. Uh, you've also had, uh, you know, again, some really discouraging things, and you've got a real challenge to think about, which is demographics. 
most of the future population growth of the world is going to happen in two places. One of them, too, is Africa. The other is South Asia. So again, the pressures are going to uh, grow. So I would think, coming back to one of the earlier questions you asked about, about aid, one of the most creative things we've done over the last, what, 15 years, it began under George W. Bush and it continued under Barack Obama, there is some successful bipartisanship and continuity in American foreign policy, is something called the Millennial Challenge Corporation. And the idea was it made greater amounts of American aid available for countries that could demonstrate certain types of political and economic reforms. It was an incentivizer. Africa is the major recipient of that kind of aid. We should continue that. That's the sort of thing when you look at budget cuts, you would say, why? We don't want to cut those things. We want to expand that. And other forms of aid which are there not just to meet near-term humanitarian needs, as important as those are, but sow the seeds for future economic uh, growth, and they tie into certain types of uh, political development. I think that ought to be the principal thing we do. We want to build up capacity in a lot of these countries. So as we saw, they can deal with things like the outbreaks of uh, disease. They need better public uh, health systems. I think just to tell you one country, though, places like uh, South Sudan, this is on the verge of becoming a colossal humanitarian uh, catastrophe because of the total breakdown in the inability, of, uh, breakdown in the ability and willingness of politicians to work together. There, we may need to work with the, what's called the African Union, their regional organization and other organizations there to essentially take control of that country and to help it through almost a kind of administrative trusteeship for a period of time till it can stand on its own two feet and govern itself in a way that hundreds of thousands or even millions of its people do not lose their lives or have a complete life of misery. So in some cases, you're going to need fairly radical uh, remedies for what So there's no, Africa's too varied to have a, a one-size-fits-all policy. So parts of it are doing just fine. Parts of it could do just fine with some help. And parts of it need, need significant, I believe, intervention. Turn our attention now to Latin America. A word about Cuba, the, the uh, uncertainties about the current administration's foreign policies uh, certainly extend to Cuba. Uh, any comments about, about that part of the world? Well, I, I actually agree with the principle of the last administration, which was to essentially try a different approach towards Cuba. You know, 50 years of economic isolation and sanction were not bringing about to Cuba that we wanted to see. And I thought we had the luxury to change our policy because with the end of the Cold War, Cuba was no longer a strategic outpost for anyone. This is a modestly sized uh, country that wasn't a strategic threat to anyone. It's essentially lost its big external subsidies, first from the Soviet Union, now from, it's lost it from, from Venezuela. Uh, so I think, you know, I don't know if this approach will work. My, we may want to introduce a bit more political conditionality into the normalization of relations. But I think it's, you know, sometimes, you know, as uh, Sherlock Holmes might say, uh, what's interesting is what didn't happen, the dog that didn't bark at night. And at least so far, I think it's noteworthy that a lot of the changes in the U.S.-Cuban relationship have not been rolled back. And I think, I think that's the right approach. I would let the experiment work and see how it plays out. Since you raise Latin America, I think the real challenge is going to be Venezuela. It's a country with the world's largest uh, oil uh, reserves. Venezuela is essentially a failed state. It is collapsing as we, uh, as we meet here today. Uh, the potential, you've seen some violence. The potential for significant violence is, is real. Uh, this government is beyond salvation. 
Uh, the real question is how to get it out of there as quickly and as nonviolently uh, as possible. And if there are things the Venezuelan people can do by themselves to do that, great. If there's external help they need, great. What I wouldn't rule out, would not be directed or led by the United States, is some of the neighbors, the so-called friends of Venezuela, themselves getting more involved. Again, if, if, a, if a country like Venezuela can't sort itself out and it starts to hemorrhage people and become a real problem for the region, then I would hope some of the neighboring countries would step up and consider ways of directly getting involved in both ousting this government and, setting, and helping Venezuelans set up a, a successor administration and, and restoring a real democratic political process. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson has argued for separating U.S. values from foreign policy. Is that a wise uh, course to take? Well, let me put it this way. Uh, you know, I, I'm a member, I, I'm a card-carrying member of what in foreign policy is called the realist school, and I think the principal business of American foreign policy ought to be to influence the foreign policies of others. Well, where are, I said the principal business, which doesn't mean it ought to be the, the exclusive business of American foreign policy. I do think we need to care about what goes on in other uh, countries. Now, the Secretary of State is right that uh, sometimes we have other priorities. To give you a very real-world example, I spent a few minutes here talking about North Korea. China is central to the, to the policy about North Korea. We probably should not pick a fight with China right now about its domestic politics, even though the government has been clamping down very hard at home in ways that we don't like. Uh, or we may have to decide with other countries that either we have other priorities or our ability to influence their internal dynamics is not great. So we could, we could sanction them and criticize them and it wouldn't have much effect other than to poison the relationship. So I think the Secretary of State has a point, but I think there's a danger in taking it too far. And there's no reason the United States should not stand up for principle. We should promote civil society, the, the foundation stones of more open societies and economies. Uh, I think we should stand up when individuals, as they are, say, in Turkey, are being uh, arbitrarily arrested. Turkey now has imprisoned more journalists than any country in the world. Uh, you had a referendum, shall we say, whose results were questionable. Uh, you have all sorts of teachers and government officials, again, being uh, arrested. I think the United States should be standing up. And this is a country that's part of NATO. NATO is meant to be an alliance of democracies. Turkey is many things. A democracy it is not. Sometimes, yeah, I just believe the United States needs to speak truth to power. And I, again, I can't give you a one-size-fits-all uh, answer. In every situation, we're going to have to look at what we think we can accomplish, competing priorities and the rest. But I do not believe, as a rule, the United States should somehow pursue a, a, an amoral, a, a narrow, just a realpolitik foreign policy. I think there needs to be uh, another, another dimension, another purpose to what we do in the world. Thank you, Dr. Richard Haas. Thank you very much.